is on my iPhone. Man, far from famous. You're more famous than I am. <laughs> no, you know how I met you? Actually, no. I met you. Hey, I'm John. William, nice to meet you. I used to have another YouTube account. I mean, uh, TikTok, the one that they uh, deactivated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> On there, you were my friend and another fellow that looks like you that's a coach, a, a football coach. Like, okay. That was Catholic and would get on before class and talk. Well, I got y'all mixed up. When I got my new account, you know, you're trying to find people. And right. you guys were so similar that I thought, I thought you were him for, for the longest. And uh, somehow I found your podcast on Spotify, I think. And I found, so I said, man, this guy's freaking famous. He's a theologian. He's, he's an expert. Hey, Anthony. I don't, know. I, don't, I don't know about all that, but I thanks, thank you for the kind words. I'm just trying to do what God's telling me to do, you know? <laughs> what are you? Are you like a um, a, a writer, an, a, an apologist by trade? Well, I guess I guess I would consider myself more of an evangelist, although I do dabble in apologetics. I mean, I'm on Gary Machuda's show uh, pretty regularly. A lot of my videos, I've had, you know, Steve Ray on. I've had Scott Hahn on, things like that. We just defending the faith stuff. So I try to do I try to do a mixture of the evangelism piece, the apologetics piece. Um, I have a column on Pathios. Um, I've written for Epic Pew, Catholic Stand, and then I have my own website, WilliamHemsworth.com, where I post stuff pretty regularly as well. Yeah, I've got your um. I'm a podcast addict, and I had my playlist on, and I got to the one. But it was, excuse me, yesterday about you get how you became Catholic, and I went. I, I I hit that one. I I scrolled past it because I wanted to hear <laughs> mouth. So yeah, fair enough. You're like Baptist people, like a Baptist minister. What was that? I'm sorry. You look like a, a Southern Baptist or a Pentecostal preacher to me. Oh, that's funny because I was actually when I um, came into the church. I mean, official. I mean, part of my story is when I was researching in Baptist seminary. I was researching my major for divinity was church history because one of the things I wanted to do was prove that the church fathers weren't Catholic. And here I am. So it actually happened in a Baptist seminary. <laughs> you were to prove that they were not Catholic? That's what I was trying to prove, yeah. And that not the case whatsoever. Um like I, the bit the big ones for me were like Polycarp, for example, Saint Justin Martyr, uh, Saint Irenaeus, and of course Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Four of the earliest ones. Man, so much Catholic stuff in there. And I was like the whole Holy Spirit was hitting me over the head with a frying pan like crazy, like wake up, wake up, wake up. And I, I eventually did, you know, I gave up the, I don't want to say I gave up the fight as more I obeyed the Holy Spirit and became Catholic. Well, um, when, when I was going through this journey, I st I'm still on the journey, but when I first started researching the Catholic faith, my pastor 
I had a couple of different churches I was going back and forth to. You, you ever heard of Liberty um, Baptist in Lynchburg? Yeah, that's actually, uh, that's the seminary I was at. <laughs> All righty. Small world. A.J. Smith was my pastor for a while. And he was an online teacher for, for that school. And he majored in early church writings and stuff. And when I was starting to go through this, you know, I was calling him, you know, I was like, because he was trying to dissuade me. Sure. I was like, uh, Pastor, what, how come we don't have bishops? What is Eucharist? Why, why are they so, you know, it was really, it, it, it was just so, how can you ignore that stuff and be on pursuit of truth? Right. Right. Exactly. Once you're pursuing, if you're, if you're seriously open to pursuing the truth, you read them, you know, without trying to do mental gymnastics or anything, they're going to point you to exactly what the early church did. The early church believed in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. You know, they believed in uh, the authority of the bishop. Um, St. Irenaeus is very specific and says true church can trace the bishops can trace their lineage back to the apostles. And then he goes a step further and says the true church has to, you know, you have, if you want to be in the true church, you have to agree with the most holy church in Rome. I mean, he's very specific about all those things. And then we were on this people throughout the years that try to do mental gymnastics and get around it and try to explain it away. But if you just listen for what they say, they're going to point you. They're going to point you there every single time. It's just amazing what those guys will do. And yeah. I, I've said this. I said this before. I mean, they wrote two thousand years ago, but the Holy Spirit is still. They're still. They're still. The Holy Spirit is still using them to lead people to truth, and it's amazing. What was it that first got your piqued your interest in it? What What stirred you up? As far as the church fathers go? Yeah, what made you go there? Oh, because Jimmy Aiken had a book um, called The Father Knows, Fathers Know Best. Mm -hmm. And it, and for those that haven't checked it out, and please do check it out, um, what Jimmy Aiken did is he had quotes from the church fathers on every subject there was. And so I tried to write a rebuttal. Okay? I tried to, like, yes, the church fathers believe in faith alone. Here are some of the passages or the church fathers believe in the soul of scripture. Here are some of the passages. And so I got three pages into this book. I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> it, it it's, it's, it's being dishonest because I'd have to quote mine and take them totally out of context to get that point across. Yeah. But, but really, my, my story goes back even further than that, though. Um, my, I came into the church, I guess you could say officially in 2006, but I didn't do it for myself. I did it for my wife. Okay. And I didn't believe in the true presence of Christ. I didn't believe in all that. So I came into the church not believing these things. That's a problem. I hope everyone understands that. Please don't do that. Come into the church because you know it's true, not because you're doing it for someone else. It would have saved us a lot of heartache. But all everything I went through led me to where I am now. But Bishop Fulton Sheed once said, once you, once you lose sight of the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, everything else is going to fall apart. And so it's what I did. I kind of 
even though I was going to mass with my wife, I was like, I don't believe this. I'm just, I'm doing it for her. Um, what, was it that, what was it that was keeping you from believing that? Why not? Um, as far as the Eucharist goes? Yeah. Um, it, honestly, it just, I had a hard time just believing that what I saw, so the bread and wine turned into the body and blood of Christ. It didn't make sense to me uh, from a mental standpoint. And it's a miracle. It's re we're really not going to understand it 100% this side of heaven. And I understand that now. And, and, and I think it was just, a, and honestly, it was just pride, I believe, because it was a part of me wanting, I had plans. I wanted to work in a church. I had always been called to some kind of ministry. And as a Catholic, what am I going to do? I'm married. I can't be a priest. Right. What, what am I, what am I going to do here? And so it was, um, I really, looking back, I really believe it was just pride. Okay. So if the Eucharist is a source of some of the faith and I don't believe it, obviously I can't do this. What am I going to do now? And it really, and really that's when I, that's when I start, that's when I enrolled at Liberty, right? I started studying church history and dude, life changed. I mean, it's life changed. Um, I remember reading, Polycarp. I remember my professor saying that Polycarp was a good Baptist. Oh, really? Yes. He, he used those words. I remember him saying um, he was a good Baptist. And oh, my goodness, that anything could be further from the truth. Yeah. Now, Polycarp, Polycarp only has one letter that we have, but we have his account of his martyrdom as well. But in that letter that he has, the letter to the Philippians, he quotes Tobit. Okay, he quoted he quoted Tobit. Now, um, let me. I'm trying to pull up exactly what he wrote. I thought I had it, but I thought maybe I don't know. Here we go. One second. But he said almsgiving. Oh, where was it? I'll move my phone for a second here. When you do good, defer it not, because alms delivers from death, and that's from Tobit 410. <laughs> and so. I'm reading on this software that I had and it had a footnote and I clicked on the footnote and it said it's from Tobit. And I was like, Tobit, that's not scripture. Why is he quoting this? But if you know anything about Polycarp, he's a disciple of St. John. He's taught by St. John. And if he's quoting it, this is how my mind, my mind started. My, the wheel started turning here. I'm like, okay, if he's quoting this, maybe St. John said this is something that we should believe. Now, if that's speculation on my part. There's nothing written on that. That's just kind of where my mind was going. It's logical. And then, yeah, exactly. That's just where my mind was going. And then, and then I read in his letter that, you know, if you want to do, if you want to do, if you want to be a true Christian, you know, follow the commandments, do works of mercy, et cetera. That's a far cry from faith alone. Now, obviously, we need faith. We are not saved without faith whatsoever. But there's a response that has to happen here. And I was starting to see that from Polycarp. And then I get to his martyrdom, which is just a fantastic story if no one's ever read it. So he's killed, and, and there's more to the story. But he's killed, and they burn his body after he's dead. And his followers come and collect his bones because they're more precious than gold. And on the birthday of his martyrdom, they, they pray for him. And they're like, there's, I'm like, what is this? This is, this is weird stuff. And I do some research, relics, 
like, okay, this is the second century. This isn't something that's made up in the 800s, 900s, Middle Ages. This is very early on from someone who was taught by an apostle. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can get on board with that a little bit. I see some evidence historically from this standpoint. So I move on to St. Justin Martyr. I love St. Justin Martyr. If you haven't read his stuff, please do. And so St. Justin Martyr was the first lay apologist. So he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a deacon. He wasn't a pope. He's just a guy searching for truth. He goes through all these different philosophical movements. And he comes across Christianity, determines that it's true. And he's answering all these, all these accusations that the Roman Empire had about Christians. You know, because the Roman Empire believed that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They were called cannibals because they said they ate their god. Very interesting, right? <laughs> you can't do that if it's something symbolic. Uh, then I get across his um, description of the mass. And it's very primitive. It's very basic. But I remember reading this, and I'm like, where is this church? Yeah. Like, where's the church? I need to find this church. It's got to be still around somewhere. And it's got to be still around. And so I go to mass with my wife and I'm sitting there one day. At, and this is just a couple of weeks after reading this and I'm marinating on it. And I have a friend of mine who is a Southern Baptist pastor. And I've gone to his services. I'm like, his services don't sound anything like that whatsoever. Okay. Because after this description of, that St. Justin Martyr has, he, he gets very specific. He says the Eucharist, once it's prayed over, becomes the body and blood of Christ who died for our sins. And only those who believe it is can partake. And only those that have been baptized can partake. And so I'm like, okay. So a lot of churches around here, um, baptism is more a symbolic thing. If you're not baptized, it's okay. You can still participate in the Lord's Supper. This is not what this guy's saying here back in the second century. And so I'm sitting at Mass one day. And again, it's one of those Holy Spirit moments. I'm sitting there and my... And I hear this voice in my head. Remember that thing that you, you read about Justin Martyr, about how you want to find where this church is? It's been here all along. You've just been blind to it. You've been hidden prideful. And I remember this weight coming off my shoulders like, oh, man, like, what have I been doing? Like, what, what have I been doing? I've been wasting a lot of time here. And I kind of I'm like, okay, presence of Christ in the Eucharist, okay. I'm not convinced that the Catholic Church is still the way to go, though. Although I could, I can get on board with that, and especially after I started digging deeper into Scripture, reading some of the Greek and all that stuff. Okay, I, I could, I can get on board with the Eucharist being the body and blood of Christ. All right, so I move on. We move on in our, in our class, the Saint Irenaeus, because we were reading, we were starting to read some of the Church Fathers, and that's we we're reading excerpts of them, and I decided to read them. Not just paragraphs here and there, but the whole thing. And that's how mm -hmm. I came across these. And then St. Irenaeus, he had this thing called the rule of faith. He's fighting the Gnostics. And for those that don't know what the Gnostics are, they were this group saying that they were the true church because they had the secret knowledge that was given by Jesus, the Gnosis. Okay, that's Greek for knowledge. And he wrote this great work called Against Heresies. It still holds up today for anyone that wants to read it. You need to check it out. But he comes across, he writes about the rule of faith. And he, he's very, I don't want to say hardcore about it, but he was pretty hardcore about it. Um, 
This is what he says, for example, on the authority of the church. I'm going to move my phone one more time. Sorry. It's fine. All right. But oh, hold on. You know, computers like to refresh sometimes. Here we go. The authority of the church. He writes, it is possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth, to con contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which has been made known to us throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who were instituted bishops by the apostles and their successors down to our times. Men who neither knew nor taught anything like what these heretics rave about. He's like, he's calling it as it is here. But he, he goes on. And this is what this is one of the key things here. That was one of the key things that was for me. But since it would be too long to enumerate in a volume as this, the successions of all the churches, we shall confound all those who in whatever manner, whether through self-satisfaction or vainglory, or through blindness and wicked opinion, assemble other than where it is proper, by pointing out here the successions of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. That church, which has the tradition and the faith with which comes down to us after having been announced to men by the apostles. For with this church, because of its superior origin, all churches must agree. I was like, whoa, not only do we, not only is he saying that the true church can trace its bishop, its bishops can trace all the way to the apostles, but he's saying all churches have to agree with the church of Rome. That was funny is when I was, I was writing an essay on this rule of faith thing. And I said this, and I said, this became known as apostolic succession. My professor, as he's writing the paper, he says, absolutely. That's exactly what it's called is apostolic succession. But we don't believe in that anymore. Hmm. Like, like, why? Never got really an answer. But there it was. So which churches teach apostolic succession? So Eastern Orthodox, they, have, they do have valid apostolic succession. Okay. Uh, we have the Catholic Church. And there are some other churches that claim it. Like, for example, um, a Lutheran denomination I was ordained by at one point. They, they claimed apostolic succession, but only in the teaching, not in the authority, which absolutely makes no sense. <laughs> but, but anyway, apostolic succession. And this was one of those things right here. When I read this, I was like, okay, this is all adding up. So we have the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Very, this was taught from the beginning. I mean, there are church fathers like St. Ignatius of Antioch, even earlier than St. Justin Martyr that talked about that. Um. We have the authority of the Church of Rome. Here's St. Irenaeus in the second century. You can go to St. Clement in the first century with his letter to the Corinthians and make that case as well. So all these, all these things were starting to add up. My last um, was Mary. <laughs> I'm sorry. Trying to call me, so I'm hanging up. <laughs> um, was Mary. And, and, I remember hearing um, a speech by Kimberly Hahn one time, Scott Hahn's wife. She said the three biggest hurdles to her coming into the church were Mary, Mary, and Mary. And yeah. I was kind of on board with that. Now, I was okay with the perpetual virginity. I saw scriptural evidence for that. Um, my big thing was the assumption. And for some people, that's the easiest thing to go on. For me, I had, I had an issue with it. I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that with scripture. And so I'm scrolling through Facebook, you know, just like we do nowadays. And I come across this video um, by Scott Hahn. 
and he's talking about the assumption. And, you know, he's saying, you know, if we have all these relics, all these bones from all these great saints. And look at all these great cathedrals that are built there. So we have St. Peter's Bones, which is where St. Peter's Basilica is, right? Um, we have all these great things. But there's nothing with the bones of Mary. Now, if the church claimed to have the bones of Mary, that'd be like the biggest cathedral ever there. I'm like, you know what? That is so simple, but at the same time, makes so much sense. <laughs> I mean, it really did. I'm like, that really does make a lot of sense. And, and, and as I was reading through scripture, you know, Revelation 12, 1, the woman clothed with the sun is in heaven. And I'm reading these, um, some of these Protestant uh, commentaries. And they're saying, yeah, this is a depiction of Israel, but there are many that also say it's a depiction of Mary being in heaven. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But the big thing for me was no one claims to have the bones of Mary. So we know she, tradition tells us she lived with St. John um, over in Ephesus. You could actually go visit the house on a pilgrimage if you wanted to. Is that all um, right? What's that? Laredo, is that how they say it? Is that the Laredo, the house? I believe so, yes. But yeah, but no one claims to have the bones. So what happened to them? And then there is this ancient tradition. And and I tried and I tried to um, because I subconsciously I think I knew this was going to be the last domino to fall, and so I fought it hard. Okay, I remember doing a podcast against it. <laughs> it's deleted now; no one can find it. Um, thankfully, uh, but I remember saying this was a whole gnostic thing and all that, and th and that's simply not it's it's not true. And it, it, there's there's decent evidence to believe and go, going back to tradition through even the Orthodox church, the Dormition, you know, whether Mary fell asleep or died, who knows, but there's been this tradition that she was assumed into heaven. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really the last domino to fall. And I remember being, I worked at a bank at the time I was in the bank parking lot and I'm like, I'm like, okay, so what do I do here? I had plans. Like, God, I had plans. What are you doing? I had plans, right? So I text my wife and say, okay, I'm in. That was the text. She's like, what are you talking about? You're in. This make any sense. Like, I'm Catholic. And um, I got home that night. And, of course, she's crying. She's like, I've been praying for you this whole time. She's like, I could have, I could have sent emails. I could have done all this. But I knew you had to find it for yourself. And that's something to always stop with me because it was not easy for her at all. I mean, let me think about it. I come into the church. I come into the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Was she a cradle Catholic? Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's cradle Catholic. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I come into the church for her and not for me. And I say, no, I don't believe this. And in subtle ways, I'm trying to take her out. I'm not, I'm not all in trying to take her out because I knew it was important. But she's there saying, I prayed, I'm pray, I've been praying for you. I knew you had to find it for yourself. And eventually I did. It took a couple of years. <laughs> but we got there. And I, I you know, people, people ask me sometimes, like, what would have happened if, you know, your wife would have handed you, you know, 
all these you know, books, pamphlets, or had people send emails out to you. And, and honestly, knowing my personality, I would have fought harder. Mm-hmm. But knowing I did it on my own, well, it wasn't on my own. It was the Holy Spirit guiding me. But going through the process of um, researching, reading, reading all these early documents, reading what the church fathers taught about scripture um, and doing it that way made all the difference in the world. Um, when I, I used to work the night shift at EWTN, um, I also worked it for Oral Roberts, the uh, faith healer. Do you remember him? Oral, Oral Roberts? Yeah. So uh, I'd seen these volumes of books. People think we may be talking about a pamphlet or two. And uh, one, one night at uh, EWTN, I, I went into the theology department and I got a, a big bookcase for early church fathers from, I don't know, it was like 20 something volumes, right? Phone okay. dies, I apologize, flash. But uh, I took a video of it and I said, all of these books were written by the disciples of the apostles, you know, and all went for about 600 years. And I pulled a couple off the shelf and just, you know, thumbed through the page. I know, you know, we're not talking about 20 or 30 pages. We're talking about volumes. Big books, yes. <laughs> Eucharist, Bishop, all, all that stuff. And you're, there's no, you either got to be, you, you got to be dishonest to, to deny the Catholicity of the early church. You got to be dishonest. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was. Either oh, I was going, good. either I was going to accept it, or I was going to be intellectually dishonest, like you said, and say, okay, no, that's really not what they meant, even though it's plain as day. Yeah. So yeah, I had. I mean, it, it was to that point. I not only was I feeling it in my soul. Yeah. But intellectually, um, I saw it, so I had to do it. Well, I put a video of these volumes on on my YouTube, and a guy got on there and said, that he said, no, 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 that's the early church folk uh, fraud. What happened is, since then, some Catholics forged all these writings and that's what they are. They're forgeries. Well, have you ever heard that one before? I have from very, how do I, how do I say it without being mean here? But it's, it's, it's not coming from a place of honesty. Right. And here's why I say that. Because it's not just Catholic historians that see these um, things. Um, historians from all over the place say, okay, yeah, these are real historical documents. Um, for example, and, and I challenge you, go read these for yourself. You don't have to buy the volumes. I mean, if you want to buy the volumes and you have a couple grand to spend, go for it. God bless you. But you can go on newadvent.org and there people will see like, well, that's a Catholic website. Of course, they're going to have it. Fine. Well, I'll give you that. Go to ccel.org. It's ran by Calvin in by Calvin Seminary. Is that Catholic? Absolutely not. <laughs> and put, put them side by side. Same words. And here's why. Because those volumes that we have are, are um, translated 
from a Protestant church historian named Philip Schaff. Okay, that's it. Now, if you go on like Logos software or Verbum Bible software, for example, um, you, you'll see a Catholic edition. The only thing the Catholic edition doesn't have is the footnotes. If you mm-hmm. go to the one, if you go to the one that I read, where I like when I was reading Polycarp and I saw the footnote about Tobit, that's Philip Shaft there. It's not anything else. Mm-hmm. It's a Protestant historian putting the footnotes in there. So how could it be, how can they be Catholic forgeries if they're translated by a Protestant historian? That's good. That logically does not follow. That's good. Um, another question I got. I- I texted you this one, and I appreciate you answering me the other day, but um, one of the commenters here, not Anthony that's been watching, but there's a guy, Protestant, he's hung up on uh, there not being anything in the Apostle or Nicene Creed about why Jesus died. You know, actually, he died for our sins, but it's not written out explicitly and his argument was if if these creeds are, are crucial why is it the greatest point of Jesus not even listed in the creed and I'm thinking man the greatest point is he rose from the dead you know it's self evident what's the constitution is it the constitution or bill of rights that says these are things are self evident so he's hung up on why he doesn't say Jesus Christ, the only son of God, God from God, light from God, light from light, true God from true God, who died for our sins. It's not specifically there. Well, yeah, let's look at okay, so, so let, let's gotcha. So let's look historically at the creed. What was going on during this time? So the Nicene Creed um, began, most of it was written at 325 at the Council of Nicaea. It was finished up at 381 during the Council of Constantinople. What was going on during this time in the early church? Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus dying for our sins was not an issue of debate. It was a given. Everyone believed it. So if you look historically through the church, when things come up in councils, it's because they were disputed. For example, why wasn't the canon of Scripture um, infallibly defined until the Council of Trent? It was defined at the Council of Rome in 382, the Council of Carthage a couple of years later, but it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation came and there were challenges on the Deuterocanon where the church said, okay, we need, to, we need to infallibly define this now. The issue of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins was a given. It, it was taught, it was taught for, since the beginning there. So the, the during this time, there was the Arian controversy. So the guy, there's this dude named Arius, a very charismatic guy, started saying there was a time when Jesus was not. So that he's pretty much saying Jesus isn't divine at that point. That's what the creed was doing, defining mm-hmm. who Jesus was. So when the creed says God from God, light from light, true God from true God, you know, begotten, not made, one in being, or consubstantial with the Father saying Jesus is the same essence. He's always existed. That's what the creed is trying to communicate. That's what the creed was countering. That's what It was a given that Jesus died for our sins. Okay. 
it, it was it was just a given. It wasn't anything in dispute. However, later on in the creed, the creed does say, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. For our sake. Yeah. Okay. What you wrote, he man. died. For our sake, he died. Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, that's kind of explicit. Is he wanting, you know, there was a nail um, inserted in both of his feet. Um, they tied his arms up so they could drive nails through him. Is he wanting that level of, speci of specifics? I think, what here, I think what he's doing, he's going to come around and do an end run on me. Okay. What I'm saying is he's going to bring it back to this being another sacrifice, if you get where I'm going. Okay, the mass being another sacrifice type thing. He's going to say the creed. Y'all don't. The creed doesn't say that he died for our sins because y'all got to believe he's got to die every mass for our sins. That's what he's going to come back with, I think. But I'm ready with that left hook. Okay. When he comes in there, I'm ready for the left hook to knock him out. So. Well, that, and that's and that's very interesting, and obviously. As Catholics, we don't believe that we're sacrificing Jesus again and again at every Mass. Jesus died for everyone. Um, you know, eternity. Eternity not only goes forward, eternally, eternity also goes backward. Okay? Jesus, God operates outside of time. And so when we're at the Mass, it's not a re-sacrifice. Catechism states that very specifically. We are transported, if you will, to Calvary. We are watching the sacrifice, if you will. It's a it's a representation. It's not happening again. It's one sacrifice. She church the she I can't talk. The church teaches that Jesus died once and for all. Um, that I don't understand. I mean, I I guess in a way I kind of understand why people are stuck on that point. How we re-sacrifice. However, the church has never used that language. Um, it's actually Protestant historians that have used that language, and it's just not true. It's, it's a red herring. Yeah, it's just like in politics. The left, the left and the right, these talking points that, like, liberals calling themselves progressives to appear that they're forward-thinking, you know. Um, okay. The Council of Nicaea, and I'm, I'm rednecking these these terms and words and pronunciations, but uh, that was called by Constantine, right? It was, and and it, but it, it and it's because this Arian heresy that was going around. Remember, the church has been around now like two thousand years, right? So it's what's well established. But in 325, I mean, you have the, the Roman emperor there um, who recently converted to Christianity, and he sees this happening, and he sees this, I guess you can say, civil war coming. Yeah. And so it's like, he's like, hey, um, we need to, we need to like get a handle on this. And so does he call the council? Yeah, sure. He's concerned about his empire. That's, that's what he's concerned about. Is he really concerned about the faith? Maybe on a secondary level. He's concerned about the empire, though. But did he have anything to do with the council other than calling it? Nope. He did not. 
then that, you know, you know, this is, you know, if you want to go into the whole Da Vinci code thing, constant, that's all constant did. He called the council. It was the bishops, 380 bishops that ran the council. Uh, Pope Sylvester was too old to make the trip. He was elderly. Remember, we didn't have airplanes. We didn't have cars. I mean, it was a long journey. You either walked or maybe you were a donkey, whatever the case is. It was a lot. It was, it was, it was a very physical thing. And if you're old, maybe you have some health issues, you can't do it. But he sends he sends two representatives to act on his behalf. And so the bishops, they condemn. And, and people could read these canons from Nicaea. They're available online. They say the bishops voted. Nothing about Constantine in there. Constantine maybe called it. That was his extent, period. This is different. My, my thing is, this is a different event from the edict or the edict of Milan. Mm. Two different events, right? Calling yeah. the council was after 313, right? Yeah, it was 325. 325 versus 313, it's eight years, right? Mm -hmm. So the argument I've had people come at me is, well, you know, no, the early church was not Catholic. It became Catholic when Constantine uh, made the state religion in 313. Then he formed it officially in Rome with the Council of Nicaea. Um, that's the argument they want to say. But right. the, the math, the math don't line up with the argument. Yeah, and so for those that maybe aren't familiar with the argument, they say, okay, with the Edict of Milan, um, Constantine makes Christianity the state religion. He allows all these pagans, these pagan things to come in to make it more palatable for people to come in. And that's where Roman Catholicism was born. Mm -hmm. little, little problem, though. There were 26 popes before Constantine. Dang. Okay, it's been around longer than that. All Constantine did is he um, he converted on the battlefield. He saw a cross saying, you know, fight in this name. He won the victory. And he made Christianity up to this point was illegal. People, we, we lose the fact. And I think I think in, as Americans, we, um, we kind of lose sight of this because we have, you know, we can go to mass on Sunday. We're not, there's no threat of us being arrested or anything like that. And hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> but up until that point in Rome, um, you had to meet in secret. You would, you would lose your job, your family, be killed just for going to church. And in some ways, it's like that in other parts of the world now, if we keep our eyes open to it. Like in Africa, for example. Nigeria. Um, exactly. My priest is from Nigeria, and he's he's seen some things. Terrible. Um, but... We, we lose sight of that. So he made Christianity legal. So people were, so it, it, didn't be, it didn't become the state religion. All the paganism was still around. It was just now Christians are allowed. They can own stuff now. They could have property. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to go arrest them for meeting. And now, because now it's legal, they can now build cathedrals and churches and everything else. That's all it is. It's a huge it thing. Huge. It's a huge thing. Like, huge. You know, black folks were liberated legally, you know, by Lincoln 
I know that it's still a struggle, but can you, I mean, in COVID, we got shut down here. Pretty much the church was shut down worldwide. I was there at EWTN when they locked the gates. I locked the gates. Wow. This guy right here <laughs> locked people away from Jesus. I really did that. And when they took everything away from us for, what was it, a few weeks, right? And yeah, I mean, other places were longer. But, yeah, yeah. definitely for, for a few weeks. I know here in Tucson, it was about a month and a half, and we had to have mass outside. Um, yeah. That was very specific. If we had to have mass outside, we couldn't go in the church. Well, we, um, you know, I went down. I remember I was working at EWTN. And Father Bean, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, at St. Teresa. But uh, he was a Baptist and Pentecostal preacher. And he's got a lot of degrees. He's history. But you, you like him. He, um, he just got up there and said, first, first he said that this is a hoax. This whole thing's a hoax. And I can't really say that on YouTube, though. Nope. <laughs> and then, then we hear he's bad off dying from getting it. He got it that next day. So wow. his finger had been on my tongue. And now they're calling everybody and saying, no church, shutting it down and all. But when I remember, he says he's going to start doing confession. And he did it in a parking lot. It was a drive-through confession. And it was wonderful. You know, you've been going all these weeks with some mortal sins on you. No, no sacraments. And then it's a big deal to, to legalize Christianity. And we got a taste of that with with the mask getting shut down. How I remember the joy I felt when I heard that the church was going to give the Eucharist one Sunday. Remember? Mm-hmm. And, and I called, uh, you know, Father Leonard at, at EWTN. I, I, I said, is this true? He said, yeah, man, we're having the Eucharist Sunday with no penalty. I just, that just gave me a, I was just thinking the joy they might have, they felt to say, hey, we can, this is legal. Yeah, so, I mean, pl- I mean, for people listening out there, place yourselves in the shoes of our um, Christian ancestors, where you're going around for all these years or months meeting in secret, having secret symbols that's safe to meet here, like the fish. That fish was a symbol, like it was it was a nonchalant symbol. There you go. Like, yeah, sign of the cross, all that. It was a symbol saying, hey, we're meeting here. They met in people's houses in secret. You know, imagine letting someone in. Were you followed? Were, were you being followed? Did you pay attention? Did you go a different route? What I mean, Espionage stuff, right? We see that in movies. But that was the life they lived. They wanted, they loved Jesus so much. They wanted the Eucharist so badly. They wanted to attend Mass. And they knew the risk. They knew if they get caught. You know, they had a potential of being thrown into a coliseum, okay, to be killed, whatever the case is. And we have all kinds of early church documents about 
different martyrdoms. Um, martyrdom Polycarp, which I talked about earlier. Perpetual and Felicity. Um, saint Perpetual, oh man, my daughter's favorite saint. All right. Um, we watched that, we watched that cartoon so many times. But the first the first woman in the early church who actually penned a diary. I mean, huge. I mean, read her stuff. You read some of the things they went through. But for it to be legalized in 313, where, okay, there's no, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean there wasn't persecution going on. It just means that they're, they weren't going to get arrested. They weren't going to be tortured anymore. They weren't going to be killed just for the simple act of worshiping Jesus. It was no different than being a Jew in the Nazi Germany, and then one day they're saying it's over. Right. And so for all those years, maybe you got used to doing it and maybe subconsciously you're like, is this real? But then you see these churches being built and then you see these cathedrals being built. And I can't even imagine the joy that those folks had. Like I said, maybe we got a little taste of it. And by for those listening, we're not trying to compare what early Christians went through with COVID or anything. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to say for a period of time, yeah, for a period of time, we were not allowed to go into a church. Yeah. I mean, and and after a, after a couple of weeks, we were allowed to, and it gave us a different perspective. That's what, that's what it was. We realized how important this is. We realized mm-hmm. how this is a part of our lives. We realize really how much, maybe we've taken Jesus for granted in the Eucharist yeah. up until now. Yeah. And now, and now we're not going to do that anymore because we realized the gift that we had, it was taken away and now it's back again. Let's embrace it. So yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from. What well, is funny that you um, choked on the, that you were able in your journey you choked on the biggest bone you can possibly choke on, the Eucharist, you know, being the real presence. You choked on that first. And then when that's out of the way, it's kind of like you don't really have any reasons. Everything's easy after that. If you can get to be Catholic, get, if, if you can get around Mary, because my, my thought was, I would be Catholic if it wasn't for this teaching. You know, when I'm processing, I'm I'm in my first month or two of going to Mass, and I'm loving it, and I'm feeling it, man. And I, I'm like, you know, man, I would, but it, once you get through a couple of biggies, with me, the biggies was, I guess, um, Man, I guess I didn't have a biggie because when I would think about it, I was thinking, well, because I was a word man, it has to be in the word. There's always yeah. a word. It was right there. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to think. I really didn't have nothing I could offer because I secretly believed in the real presence as a Protestant. I was like, the man said it's his blood. You know, that means it's his blood. It's just, I, I didn't see where you could stand on the word of God over here, but not stand on the word of God when it's cast. Right. And, and that word is that Jesus says. I mean, what it, I remember someone telling me it all depends on what your definition of is is. Yeah. Well, in, 
in, in, in Greek, the word is, is esti, which means to be, to become. Well, Jesus says, this is to become my body. This is my body. Like, okay. He could have used different language. He could have said, you know, this is like my body or take this as a symbol of my body. He said, no, this is. And not only that, when you look at what's happening there, you know, the Passover meal with his disciples and everything, the Last Supper. In the Passover, there's something you're supposed to eat everything of. Okay, the lamb. No lamb is mentioned in the Last Supper. But Jesus says, eat, because he's the lamb. Wow. You know, I just, you know, you're exactly right. They got in the paint, there's a pile of little fishes. But they're not eating. They don't eat fish in the Passover. They eat the, the lamb. Right. And but Jesus is the lamb of God. Bread and they're only eating bread and drinking wine. Right. Said, right. Wow. So, so yeah, and and I'll, I'll never forget. Bumps, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll I'll never forget though. I mentioned Justin Martyr earlier, and I remember. Shortly after that, I'm holding my twins, and they, they were they were young. They were they were maybe a month or two. I'm I'm sitting I'm standing there holding my twins, and the priest elevates the consecrated host, and these words came out of my mouth, and they're going to sound familiar to people. My Lord and my God, that's what came out of my mouth. Had no idea, but I heard it. I'm like, whoa. Of course, that's what Saint Thomas said when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. And I just remember at that point, though, having, you know, I cried. I won't lie. There were some tears coming down, right? And it was like, wow, okay. Justin Martyr explained it. I could see it in scripture. And this uttering, it was like the Holy Spirit just uttering, like uttering it. Because it's nothing that, it just came out. There's nothing I thought. It, I just came out. I'm like, okay. I believe the Eucharist is what Jesus says it is. I'm good with that. So there were a bunch of little things that just happened. They said it took a couple of years, but thankfully my wife was patient with me. Thankfully the Holy Spirit was patient with me, you know, helping me go through all these things. Um, he put people, in, you know, Scott Hahn's video and I had the opportunity to thank him for that. And I don't know if you ever talked to him. He's like a humble dude. Like mm -hmm. I, I said, you know, he made this video about the Immaculate Conception. That was the last straw that helped me become Catholic. He's like, what? Me? What do you mean? What would I do? I'm like, dude, you're Scott Hahn. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, it was it was cool for me to actually give, get to thank him for that in, in person. Well, on my channel. But yeah, all these little things just added up. Holy and yeah, I'm so thankful. Yeah, I did have plans. Let's, I had plans to do do things for us in church. My friend who's a Southern Baptist pastor, pastor, he was going to train me to be a pastor, all that stuff. I had plans. Obviously, that stuff went away, okay? You can't do that and be Catholic at the same time. It's not possible. But it doesn't mean I'm still not involved in ministry because I always felt the call for me. Even when I was in youth group at Sunset West, I grew up at Wesleyan and Sunset Wesleyan Church in La Puente, California, I felt the call to ministry. But I'm, in, I'm doing ministry now. I mean, I, I do some stuff on my YouTube channel. It's a small little channel at Bible, the Bible Catholic. But I teach at church. I teach children on fifth graders Sunday morning. 
and I run the RCIC program. So the children that are choosing to be baptized, choosing to have first communion because they're of age. So I have seven of those in my class right now. They're going to have first communion on Easter vigil. So I'm in ministry. It's just not what I thought way back then, but it's exactly where God needs me to be. And I'm so thankful for it. So you mentioned, yeah, you're as much of a minister right now on my little redneck channel as any Protestant pastor in a pulpit. I mean, you know, you're teaching. And I just, you know, I just run across you on, on Spotify. I don't know. It took me a little bit to connect the dots. You know, because then I was stunned. So I was like, wait a minute. This, this is a guy I'm going to interview. Because I reached out to you on TikTok. Right. Dude, I thought you were this foot, this foot, because you got, you know, your background, you look like you're at the high school gym or something. So tell tell folks how they can, because you make, if you go to uh, my shorts, I don't know if you've ever looked, not these shorts, but the YouTube <laughs> shorts, you know, I, I reshare your stuff just, you know, several times a week. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So my... You can find my YouTube channel at The Bible Catholic. So um, you can type in at The Bible Catholic. It should pop up. You can type in William Hemsworth, The Bible Catholic. Um, my podcast is The Bible Catholic. Um, I just, I rebooted that. It was a podcast I had a couple of years ago. And then I got, I was doing some other stuff, but I kind of re rebooting that now. So I'm going to be posting some other older things on there. Um, my TikTok, that picture actually that you showed. Um, that, that's on my TikTok is my favorite picture. It's in, it's at our parish. It's when my kids were really young. My oldest is a high schooler now. That was taken when he was like eight. And it's just the four of them climbing over me, climbing all over me. And it's my favorite picture. And that's that's the picture that's on my TikTok. But my TikTok is at William Hemsworth Four. And so I post I post um, Bible verses, little Bible videos. I'll do some duets or stitches every now and then. Um, my job outside of all that, I, I teach uh, middle school. I'm a business teacher. And so that's what I have time for is the shorts. <laughs> um, but it, it, it works out. And But I have a bunch of other videos on my YouTube channel. I've interviewed Steve Ray. We talk about the different titles from Mary. We talk about the trail of blood theory that some Baptists have. Um, Scott Hahn's been on my channel. Gary Machuda. All kinds of great things. So if anyone wants to check it out, feel free to listen. Use what you want to use. That's totally fine with me. No need to email me and ask. Just do it. That's what it's there for. And I thank you for having me on your channel. Love your stuff as well. You're doing great stuff out there. I love it. It's funny because I'm so I don't have a I don't have one clue about how TikTok works. Because it's a different world than YouTube, Instagram. So I know that my TikTok crowd thinks I'm stuck up and wants because I don't even know how to read those mess. I don't know what I'm doing on there. And the first few months was on there, I'd post something and get two or three views or one view. It's embarrassing. So then one day people started looking at it, but um I, I kept seeing you and are, are you amazed at how many 
people or TikTok in the Catholic faith? Does it blow your mind? There is a lot more than I thought. You know, before I got on TikTok, I'm thinking it's a place of debauchery and all. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of that on there for yeah. sure. Um, but there are so many people on there defending the Catholic faith. Um, it, it's just amazing. And it's like a little brotherhood, really. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's little squabbles every now and then. For the most part, we're all supporting of each other. Uh, we'll share each other's stuff. We'll do wet it and say, you know, yeah, this is right. Check this out. All that. There are so many great things on there. Um, How does that it, happen? I, but my thing is, I mean, I mean, meeting someone like you was just great. And I'm thinking, in I think it was 2017 when I started my channel. I did it in part because I didn't think there's anyone. There's just a regular lay person out there talking about what the Catholic Church believes. You know, I thought this was an original. I, I thought I invented this for a while, and, and then I found out there's others. And it's like, man, it's like I can't believe how many YouTubers, Instagrammers, are kids. That know more about the church than, I mean, they know their stuff, man. And let me ask you something real quick. And when you gotta go, you gotta go. Just say you gotta go. But I wanna ask you this about YouTube. And I've noticed a couple of the popular influencers will use the actual F bomb in their little presentation of the gospel, Christianity, Catholicism. I'm not going to mention names, but I've heard two of them do it. Now, I reshared one of them, and I have a bad habit of uh, liking or resharing stuff that I don't totally watch the whole thing. And I got in trouble because I couldn't figure out how to add the music. So if you don't know how to do that, TikTok will slap right. the music. So I'm I'm like got gangster rap on my first couple of months of my apologetics and I mean I got the F bomb B I T and people right. rebuking the hell out of me, sir. You cannot be using this kind of music. Like, I'm trying to do this, right? So, but a lot of people didn't care. And But these people are using the F-bomb to do Catholic ministry. I don't know if you've noticed that. I'm talking a certain age. I haven't come across that. Okay. Um. I got in trouble. My priest. I didn't get in trouble. He just mentioned you shared an inappropriate TikTok of a young lady. And that's what it was. She used the F-bomb in her little Catholic TikTok. And then I seen it again by a guy. And then you got like Marky Wahlberg. You know, he's all about the halo. You know, and he's on all these big Catholic TV shows, man, he'll he'll rattle off that F bomb 
is that still a cuss word in this generation of younger people? Has that changed? I can only speak from my experience teaching middle schoolers. They know it's a cuss word. <laughs> but at the same time, it's part of the lingo. Um, so I, I think in society, unfortunately, it's become more accepted. doesn't mean it's right. Um, now, as far as people using it in their gospel presentations, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak on that. But um, I don't know. It may not be the best witness, though. That's, that's just my opinion. Or could it be a great witness? Possible. I'm just please don't I mean, don't hit that end button. I'm just you know just <laughs> this lady. Man, we Father Ben is a trip. I went through his RCIA class during COVID, and all the class was real small and people got real in there. They're talking about, uh, you know, stuff people confess to. And one of it was uh, sexual fantasy. Father mm-hmm. Bean cannot, can me, me and my spouse have these sexual fantasies while we're doing it. Is that a sin? Is that luring my partner into lust? And he said it could be a virtue. If you're helping your partner get get someplace, but you can, can you can go past that back into I don't know. It's just you you wonder. I mean, but in our in the RCI in the RCI environment, there are some very real conversations that happen. I'm involved with RCA as well, and those conversations are great. Um, it's people. It's things people are struggling with, and what stays in that room stays in that room type of scenario people are um they're letting their hearts out and so sometimes language does get heated so i guess when you're in or heated or emotional whatever the case is and i think sometimes when you're in that emotional environment if you're just talking it out um we're human words slip out if you're doing a video um is it possible it's a subconscious thing where maybe you got heated and it came out sure um maybe you don't realize it came out um, I just think for people that are coming across that, um, it may be a better, a better Christian witness. If you go back and edit that word out, you can still have, you can still be real. You can still be emotional. You can still speak to people's hearts without an F-bomb coming out every couple words or so. Yeah. I, and I'm, and, right, and, I'm just, I'm in real estate and man, I'm, I'm not going to mention my office, but we had a whole round about two years ago of a bunch of new agents showed up. And most of them been out of college a year or two. They got a degree, but they ain't making no money. So they're attractive. They come into real estate. You know, a bunch of 30-year-olds. Just all my work buddies. Everybody I work with, that's my culture. We go to lunch. I'm in, a, you know, five blondes. We're going to lunch. And they had no problem at all weaving the F word into every text, email, conversation. I'm talking work conversation. You know, text me to F and lean. You know, it just was not a thing. And I'm thinking... Now, I'm 60 now, and I'm thinking, 
Am I old? Is that because the first time I ever said the word fart, F A R T, I got a whipping. And the first time I said the word sucks, it was like the F bomb. I got a the beating of my life because my mom will whip me to the night before I joined the Marine Corps. I got a whipping the night before for being late. She was a she hide behind that door with a belt. But now, the F bomb, I mean, I'm like, I heard it at a drive through the other day. We're at a drive through. She said, Sorry, sir, we have to have your order. And I'm like looking at her like, Did you just say that to me? And I'm just wondering where our culture is going and, and where, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I'm just thinking that way. I'm not trying to prove it. Just as, as Catholics, um, yeah, it's definitely culture is going down a path where it shouldn't go. Um, some things are commonplace now that probably shouldn't be commonplace, but we're called to be we're called to be salt and light in the world. We're not to be of the we're in the world, but not of the world, as Scripture says, right? But we can be that good influence on people. Um, we can still love them. We can nurture them. Um, we can show them the love of Christ. And you never, you just never know what, how that's going to respond, how that's going to affect someone. Maybe, maybe they're going through something at home. Maybe it was a bad parenting. Maybe it was, maybe they went through a bad divorce. I don't know, whatever the case is. There's millions of scenarios out there. And they're feeling down, they're hurt, and it's their way of coping. We don't know. I definitely not condoning it, but at the same time, let's let's be that salt and light that Jesus tells us to be. Let's influence the culture that way. We never know who we come across on a daily basis, what they're going to need. If that love is going to push them in a direction opposite of where they were going, we just don't know. We're called to be obedient. Let's be obedient. What What's your secret to being so nice? You said I'm nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're... I mean, you watch. I watch what I watch a lot of your videos and and, and listen to the podcasts and all. And and but you just have not. Uh, you come across just like a nice guy, you know. Like you're. Well, I like to think I'm a nice guy, and I just like you genuinely, or a good guy that wants to reach out. And I mean, you could slip right into First Baptist. Or the Presbyterian Church, and and I know you'd have a, a full class. It's funny because a lot of most of my good friends are Protestant ministers, so it's it's kind of funny. And we have good we have good conversations. You know, we'll go out. I have a friend of mine. He's a worship leader at a Baptist church in town. And every now and then, we'll just go to a restaurant. We'll have something to eat, have a couple beers, just hang out, relax, and they'll ask me questions about the faith. He's like, "Oh, that makes sense." That makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. I guess it's just the attitude of I'm just trying to, I'm here. I, I've always had a heart for people. I want to help people, even though I'm naturally introverted, which people there find very hard to believe. Um, I just have a heart to help people. And I think people see that. And so they're, they're, I've had people come up to me in the grocery store and just start talking to me. I'm like, who are you and what's happening here? Like, I don't know what's happening. Or a random kid on the street come up and give me a hug and just run away. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, my wife says, 
Yeah, my wife my wife has said that as well. Like you're just a net, just someone people are comfortable around. And if that's how God wants to use me, that's great. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm not to answer a question. I guess I'm naturally nice, and I don't know. I I want people to treat me well, so I treat people well. I need to be more like you. You know how Paul would say, follow me, imitate me. So you should, write, you should do a podcast, imitate me. Uh, yeah, you're just a nice guy. And some people made some comments about, do you know, um, I'm going to let you go. Do you know, uh, Rob, do you ever watch Blue Collar Catholic? Have you heard of him? This guy you I've heard of it. I don't think I, I've, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've watched. It's Blue Collar Catholic, it's called? Yeah, it's different. John Martioni. It's a different guy. And uh, uh, he, he kind of kept me from falling in that hardcore rad ditch, rad trad ditch. You said all your friends were Protestant ministers. Every Catholic friend I got is a rad trad. Hardcore. Every one of every one of my friends is super duper listening to Father Rip Burger only. Uh, what's that census fidelium channel? But you know, they all think I'm a flaming liberal. Yeah, and if they and if they watch your stuff, you know you're anything but so what <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they would think, but you know. I do want to get Father James Martin. You know who I'm talking about? I know who you're talking about. Get him to uh, come on here and just answer, flat out answer questions. Because something I hate is there, there's a huge interdenominational church right down the street. It's next door to EWTN. They sit next to each other. This is supposed to be the biggest fastest growing Protestant church in the country. Church Islands. Okay. And all the preachers are jealous as hell about this church. I mean, it's got literally 50-something thousand members. Wow. It's next door to EWTN. And my brother started going there, my middle brother, and he got baptized there right before he passed during COVID. And when my other brothers asked me about this church everybody's going to, I didn't want to be guilty of what Protestants do and say a bunch of stuff they don't know because I had never heard this guy preach. Chris Hodges is his name. I've never heard him preach a day in my life, never read his articles never read anything by him, how can I get on record and make statements about him? Right? So I always hear all this bad stuff about Father James Martin, but I've never listened to the guy. Have you ever listened to him? His sermon? No, I mean, I've never listened to him. I've only seen his tweets. That's about it. And you know, on Twitter, you very well, at least you used to be very limited what you can say. Um, so, I mean, obviously I'm sure there's a lot based on things I've read. I'm probably going to disagree with him on, but it, it's one of those things that'd be good to hear him talk about it. 
so you're not just getting the 240 character word limit version version of it. That we all know is little javelins most of the time when we tweet something. But yeah, I just want to, I would like to ask him some questions myself because uh, I've gotten to the place where I'm not going to make my opinions on sound bites. I've been burnt. You know, I listen to sound bites from my favorite president for four years. And then you hear sound bites against your Pope, the same, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? It's sound bites. And, and I'm at the point where I want to hear, you know, the whole story. That's the reason really I wanted you on to hear about those creeds. I got one last question. I promise you. The councils, okay? You got one in uh, Carthage, Alexandria, yeah. uh, all if the Roman Catholic Church was the head hub and in charge, the supremacy, why weren't all those people walking to Rome for these meetings? Why were they? That's a good question. Oh, he froze up on me, I think. So why didn't why weren't there councils in Rome? Well, there was. Um, council of Rome was one of the first councils to. Um, list what the canon was in 382. Uh, Carthage, there were um, a lot of other Christians. There were a lot of other bishops there. And remember the distance, even though it was the Roman Empire, even though Rome was the center, Carthage is in Africa. It's a long journey. So you had these other regional councils that were doing things and then sending it over to Rome for ratification and all that. Um, so that's one we did. They, there was not transportation like today. All right, I lost you. Well, everyone, looks like we had some technical issues. I thank you all for watching. All right, you guys have a great day. God bless you.